Welcome to the Messianic Jewish Life Podcast. Hi, this is Daniel Nassim, and today we'll continue our series on the history of the Messianic Jewish movement by examining what the Jewish world was like in the year of Yeshua's birth. This is episode four in our series, our title, An Innocuous Dawn, 0 BCE. In the last few weeks, we have told the story of the setup, how the Jewish people got to the place they were in towards the end of the Second Temple period, the time when the stage was set for what Messianic Judaism would become. As we tell the story of Messianic Judaism, we are now beginning to tell the story of its dawn and beginning to imagine what the world was like in the year that Messiah was born. We are imagining the world at that time, not through the eyes of what historical events tell us, but as much as possible as it might have been seen by Yeshua's parents and contemporaries in that year. This is, after all, where Messianic Judaism truly began, with the birth of the Messiah. Imagine this. It's a political minefield. The year is 6 BCE, or as Yeshua's parents might have thought of it, the 31st year of King Herod's reign. That is Herod the Great, the Idumean, descendant of Edomites forcibly converted to Judaism by the Hasmonean leader Hircan. This is the Herod who defied the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling religious authority of Judea, and ultimately killed Antigonus, the last of the Hasmonean dynasty, thus bringing the great rule of the Maccabees to a bloody end. People despised Herod. He died in the year 4 BCE, a couple years after Yeshua was born. So the same was probably true for Yosef and Miriam. While Herod ruled most of what is Israel today, including the Golan Heights and part of Jordan, on the east bank of the Jordan River, his affiliation with the Romans and his violent ruthlessness against anyone who might possibly threaten him didn't endear him to anybody. Sure, people were no doubt impressed by his building of the temple, but he wouldn't have received too much credit for it, as the bill was mainly footed by the half-shekel tax that Jews all over the empire paid to the temple each year. More distant in the Jewish imagination of the day would have been the power of Rome itself, far away on the Italian peninsula, but every day present with its soldiers, its might, its power. For Roman purposes, it was the 21st year of Emperor Augustus Caesar's rule. Rome itself had illegitimately assumed power in Judea. The seeds were there for resentment. These seeds would have been watered by the inspiration that people drew, as today, from the Maccabean Hanukkah narrative. Like sunshine and warmth on these seeds was the hope from the Jewish messianic prophecies that pointed to redemption at this very time in history. In the soil of the Jewish homeland, bound inextricably to the promises to the patriarchs and the visions of the prophets for their full fulfillment, messianic Judaism, in one form or another, was almost a foregone conclusion. In fact, as we've seen in previous episodes, other messianic pretenders were far from unknown. 
As you can see, the roots of the calamity that befell the Jews with the Jewish wars had time to develop and ran deep. Now, Miriam and Yosef, Yeshua's parents, lived in a Jewish world, and it was into that world that their, or more restrictively her, child would be born. From what we can tell, because we don't know the towns that they came from, is that that was the Jewish world of Judea and the Galil, both of which had large Jewish populations. In those regions, many people were farmers whose lives were relatively simple, and for some of them, their lives weren't far above subsistence. Better off were the tradesmen, and particularly in Jerusalem, tradesmen were well-paid and numerous, working on many building projects, especially those of Herod. Some were also merchants, and of them, some would have been quite well-to-do, of course. Solomon Grazel suggests that at this time, Jerusalem held a population approaching a million. More recently, Levine Lee suggests under 60 to 70,000, although this sounds like unreasonably low. Throughout the region, though, the Jewish population was substantial and numbered in the millions, both in Judea and in the Galil. While the Jewish population was great, it was not alone. For sure, Yosef and Miriam would have known Gentiles because their cities and communities were intermingled throughout the land. Gentiles in Jewish cities, Jews in Gentile cities, people intermingling for commerce and for business and bureaucratic reasons. Nevertheless, religious Jews would have had little in common with the Gentiles, and the purity laws that were promoted by the Pharisees would have had a big influence in preventing relationships from getting too close. Yosef and Miriam were bringing their child into a world that was clearly Jewish, but was also far from isolated from the rest of the empire and its culture. In addition, Yeshua's family were part of a people in general, the Jewish people who were not confined to the land alone. Jews were thriving in Babylon, and they were numerous throughout the empire. The Roman historian Strabo, who was 58 when Yeshua was born, said that there was hardly a place in the world where Jews might not be found. This, of course, is corroborated in the book of Acts, where we read that the leaders of the Messianic Jewish community in Jerusalem stated that from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So Jews were certainly to be found in the major cities, such as Antioch in Syria to the north, or Alexandria in Egypt to the south. In both places, Jews and Gentiles got along fairly well, at least at that time. But one thing people don't often realize is how auspicious the days of Yeshua's birth were. It was in those days that the great sages Hillel and Shammai taught in Jerusalem. Both of them were disciples of Shammai, the president of the Sanhedrin, and Abtalion, his colleague. Both Hillel and Shammai had studied also in Babylon in the great schools there. And they were remarkable people. One apocryphal story says that Hillel was so poor that he made his living chopping wood, and half of his earnings would go to pay his fees to study at the Beit Midrash. So here's the story, straight from the Talmud. 
It was reported about Hillel the Elder that every day he used to work and earn a tropic, half of which he would give to the guard at the house of learning, and the other half being spent for his food and for that of his family. One day he found nothing to earn, and the guard at the house of learning would not permit him to enter. He climbed up and sat upon the window to hear the words of the living God from the mouth of Shemaiah and Abtalion. They say that day was the eve of Sabbath in the winter solstice, and snow fell down upon him from heaven. When the dawn rose, Shemaiah said to Abtalion, Brother Abtalion, on every day this house is light, and today it's dark. Is it perhaps a cloudy day? They looked up, and they saw the figure of a man in the window. They went up and found him covered by three cubits of snow. They removed him, bathed and anointed him, and placed him opposite the fire and said, This man deserves that the Sabbath be profaned on his behalf. History records that Hillel died in the year 10 CE. At that time, Yeshua would have been 16. Shammai, on his part, died in 30 CE, about the same time, the same year almost, that Yeshua died. The two scholars held separate schools in Jerusalem because the Romans would have been really suspicious of the large crowd if all of their disciples had come to discuss the Torah together. Personally, they rarely disagreed, although there was one issue regarding the laying of hands on an animal to be sacrificed that they were unable to sort out, and that may have been part of the reason for their division. But really, there are just three, maybe five, significant differences that Hillel and Shammai had. Shammai, however, generally held to a stricter application of the Torah and Halakha. And their disciples from both schools developed different opinions on a myriad of subjects. The schools endured, they went on for some two centuries, and thus the schools of Shammai and Hillel have come to be immortalized in the Talmud, with the more lenient opinions of Hillel and his school almost always being preferred. For that, I think we can be thankful. These scholars, and indeed all Jews, lived in the reflection of the temple. It was the greatest of all marvels. It was considered in its day to be one of the wonders of the world. Here the priesthood, mostly comprised of Sadducees, had tremendous influence. They were both the elitists, they had some power, they were to some degree, maybe a large degree, Hellenists, welcoming in Greek culture. And the source of their power was that they were the keepers of the temple, and they were the ones who performed all of its rituals, its ceremonies, and its sacrifices. Yet, nevertheless, it was in the shadow of their edifice, that temple, that Hillel and Shammai taught, as well as other famous Jewish scholars, some of whom are mentioned in the New Testament. While the world Yeshua was coming into was divided, people had nevertheless learned to accommodate one another, even if they weren't happy with the situation. The situation, however, was less fractured in the Galil, where Yeshua would spend his youth. There, there was a bustling and large population with farming and trades and a fishing industry. Jews rubbed shoulders with Greeks and other Gentiles. They were actually considered less pure than those up in Jerusalem, where people managed to keep sharper boundaries. Here, though, in the Galil, Pharisees played a key role in the synagogues, along with the Sophrim, 
the scribes, many of whom may have been priests themselves. The Pharisees were those who were part of the people themselves, part of the population, interacting on a daily basis in their towns and villages. And theirs was the belief that there is an afterlife, that there is such a thing as the resurrection from the dead. And they were unlike the fatalistic Sadducees who saw God in the distance, but they believed that one could have a personal relationship with God. Most notably, the Pharisees' firm belief in the Torah extended to the prophets and the writings and to the tradition first expressed in the lines of Pirkei Avot. Moses received the law from Sinai and handed it down to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets handed it down to the men of the great assembly. They said three things, be deliberate in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make a fence around the law. The basic premise that there was a communal memory and tradition as to what the words of the Torah meant What they implied and how they should be applied to daily life was accepted by the people and Yeshua himself said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Here it was that the synagogue, or the ecclesia, as they were sometimes called, thrived, not only in the Galil, but even in Jerusalem as houses of prayer and places of study, as the temple could never accommodate all the religious students of the day. Then as now, Jews were known for the value they place on the written word and on scholarship. So, for the common person, how religious were Jews in Judea and the Galil in that day? People in that day believed in God, they believed in angels, they believed in morality. That was a Jewish thing in kindliness. These last two were not common in the ancient world. More religious than anyone seem to have been the Essenes. And there's two things I'd like to say. One is we owe them a huge debt of gratitude for the Dead Sea Scrolls, which they were involved in hiding in those caves in the Judean wilderness for us to discover in 1948. And secondly, though, We need to heed the advice of a scholar, Simon Joseph, who says because there's hardly any evidence, the data is ambiguous, and because the Essenes are so remote in time, we need to be careful in how we establish relationships and draw parallels between them and the early believers. Nevertheless, parallels are there, and we'll see them as we continue telling the story in future episodes of this podcast. Now, Messiah's home. Messiah seems to have been born into a religious home. Miriam's relative, Elisheva, was from a priestly family, and her husband, Zechariah, was a Kohen, a priest. Together, we are told, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were religious, observant Jews. Miriam's praise upon Elisheva's blessing of her and her unborn child reveals this depth of humility and devotion to God and this awareness of God's faithfulness in remembering his promises to Abraham and his descendants forever. 
There's no hint of a religious separation between the relatives and Yosef, who functions as Yeshua's father. And he himself is described as a righteous man. The setting is clear. The Messiah of the Jews was to be born into a religious Jewish home, in a religious Jewish world, in a Jewish Roman and Greek milieu. He was born in a year of census. That one's hard to nail down because there's no documentation of any such census. Nevertheless, we live now and not then, so it's understandable if there are some dots we can't connect. Alfred Edersheim, that Oxford Jewish Messianic scholar, suggests that it was a Jewish-style census designed to keep the peace. It was year zero. The history of Messianic Judaism is a story rooted in the Judaism of Yeshua's time, his place, and his family. It's here that we leave our story for this week. Next week, please God, we'll cover the historical aspects of Messiah's birth and childhood. It is a thoroughly Jewish story. So thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. And do me a favor, take a minute to like this podcast and leave a positive review wherever you're listening to it. Support our podcast by going to onmessianicjudaism.com. And if you want to reach me, my email address is daniel at nassim.org. And I'm looking forward to your feedback. I am Dr. Daniel Nessim, and this is On Messianic Judaism. <music>